today as we continue to expand the instructions for this practice, we expanded the field of attention to include mind states. And sometimes when one hears that instruction, be with the breath as a primary object and when a strong or predominant mind state arises, notice it and allow the attention to be with it and then return to the breath as the mind state changes or diminishes. Sometimes one has the feeling that this is a practice of paying attention to the breath with occasional reference to mind states. Or one has the impression that mind states are things that only occasionally arise and that aren't there all the time. And that's not so. There's always a mind state present could do an entire meditative practice just paying attention to mind states alone, watching how they come and go and change. Sometimes mind states are quite gentle, like calmness or peacefulness, ease, happiness, contentment. Sometimes mind states are very dramatic, can be dramatically blissful or dramatically frightful. Sometimes people recognize dramatic mind states quite easily and have trouble recognizing more gentle mind states. I had a friend who told about, in the beginning years of her practice, She said that she was practicing for some time with awareness of a new mind state. And it took her some time to figure out what this new and unusual mind state was. And finally she figured out that what it was was calm. She was so unused to it that she didn't recognize it when it happened. What I thought I'd talk about tonight were the difficult mind states. I thought I'd talk about it for two reasons. First of all, it's clear from meeting with you in interviews and from just from knowing how this practice evolves that everyone here has had a fair share of experience with difficult mind states today and yesterday and the day before. They're part of the equipment of the mind. It's not unusual for them to happen. They're supposed to happen. That's how minds operate. But they're a little bit difficult to work with. And they're uncomfortable to have. So one reason that I want to talk about them, I want to talk about some ways of working with difficult mind states. The other reason, and in a sense it's a more far-reaching reason, is that these are the difficult mind states that really obscure clear seeing. Sometimes in the, in the <coughs> literature, these difficult mind states are called the hindrances. Hindrances to clear seeing. And sometimes they're called defilements of the heart. I used to not like to tell people that they were called that. It seems like a not nice thing to have, defilements of the heart. <laughs> <clears throat> Somehow it's improper. 
But in fact, when you think about it, they really are in the best sense of a defilement that which obscures purity. And if we begin with the understanding that the natural state of the mind is pure and spacious and truth self-revealing in a mind that's clear, then these are the difficult mind energies that obscure the revealing of truth. So in a sense, it's not a bad word for them. So we'll talk about the difficult mind states and we'll talk about ways of working with them. There's some things to be said about them just before we begin. There are five classically difficult mind energies. Everybody here has them. That's the first thing to say about them so that as these energies arise and pass away in the mind, can really know that that's part of the equipment. It's not unusual. That's how the mind works. Also, that it seems as if for each individual who knows why, their cultural patterning, their karma, for whatever reason, one or another difficult mind state seems more difficult and more prevalent than the other four. So as I describe them to you, you can think about which one is mine. Sometimes I call, I think people might pick out their favorite mind state, but actually it's not the favorite. Actually, it's usually the least favorite because it's the one that's there the most. So you might listen to them and think, oh, that's me. You might think, oh, that's me for each one of them. And in a way, they're all interrelated. So that's another thing to be on the lookout for them. Since I know which is my most prevalent mind state, I've come to befriend it in a certain way and recognize it as, well, that's just my mind pattern. And it allows me to be more comfortable with it and work with it more easily. So you be on the lookout for yours as I describe them. There are five of them. And they're easy to remember because four of them are two pairs of opposite energies. If you think about energies, the mind states are really energies that ruffle the mind, that obscure clarity. The first two opposite energetic states are the energy of pulling or wanting or needing. And the opposite energy to that is the energy of pushing away, not wanting. The next two energies are also, in a sense, opposites. One of them is not enough energy in the mind, a low energetic mind. The other one is too much energy in the mind, kind of like a push-me-pull-you. It's got both sides. And the fifth energy kind of a slippery energy in the mind. It's the energy of doubt. And I'll describe them to you a little bit more and you see which ones seem familiar to you. The first energy is the energy of needing, energy of desire, the energy of wanting something that one doesn't have. It's kind of a reaching out of the mind. I need this, I need that comes up in retreat practice a lot. 
just in the most mundane aspects of life experience. If only I had brought another sweater to this retreat, I'd feel better, I'd be warmer. If I had a higher zafu, or a lower zafu, <laughs> or a kneeling bench, I need a kneeling bench, kneeling bench will make me comfortable. Or if it were warmer here, or cooler, or if the lunch was earlier, I need lunch now. <laughs> the mind looking for different things, reaching out. It knows it isn't happy, so it's reaching out for something to make it happy. You could really spend a lot of time in a retreat working with needing thoughts. Want to go for a run? When can I go for a run? When can I take a shower? Planning. Not that it's naughty to think that. That's just what the mind does. Little energy of neediness comes up and it looks for something to need. It's actually the energy that's there first. <laughs> it's really true. You think about it. There are lots of things that you don't even want until you see them. And then it's, it's energy of need that just gloms onto something. It happens in life all the time, outside of retreat. Probably if you're on anybody's mailing list, you get a lot of catalogs in the mail every day for all kinds of stuff that you didn't think you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Until you open the catalog and there are all kinds of things that you really need. <laughs> That's just the way mind works. You look at something, it looks good. This is a very important piece of Dharma that pleasant sense contact conditions the arising of desire. That's just the way the mind works. It's not that anybody's mind is worse behaved than anyone else's, that's just the way the mind works. And it's not wrong to respond to pleasant things by wanting them. Lots of times in life it's appropriate and reasonable to have the things that we want. It's not a, desire itself is not a problem. The only problem is when there's a desire that becomes annoying or a craving or a preoccupation. I need to have that. That's what stands in between me and happiness. Then it becomes really a difficult and clouding mind state. Otherwise, desire is not a problem. It comes, if it's a reasonable thing, you do it. If it isn't, you don't do it. It's gone, no problem. <coughs> the problem is the pullingness of it. So I could tell a lot of people recognize that mind energy. Now we try the next one. The next one is the mind energy of not wanting. It's the opposite energy. Not liking, aversion. It's kind of a grumpy mind is what it is. It's a mind looking for something not to like. So that all of a sudden enormously irritating that the person next to you blows their nose so much or comes in late or shuffles around so much. And the mind just makes irritating judgmental thoughts, just manufactures the thoughts. It's actually grumpiness looking for a looking for an object. Well you know that in our regular life, you know, sometimes we say to people, you know, I just got up on the wrong side of the bed today. 
or it's the wrong time of the month, or it's the wrong phase of the moon. Just grumpy. Everybody recognizes grumpy mind state. It's an aversive energy, not liking. There are some people for whom that seems to be a predominant mind state, not liking. It's not a comfortable one. And there are all kinds of things not to like, so that it's easy to find some sort of object to hook that energy onto and then keep it going in the retreat or in our life. It's not a problem to have aversive energy come up in the mind. It's just the same as desire is not a problem. Unpleasant sense experience leads to the arising of aversion. That's just how the mind works. Something happens, you don't like it, you want less of it and push it away. It's not a problem if you can move away from that object or if you can deal with it in some way or if you can let go of not liking it. It's only a problem if the mind gets stuck in that and identified with it and carries on with it and then really clouds the mind, makes a certain amount of agitation in the mind, a certain amount of unrest. I was at a conference a couple of years ago and one of the speakers was the Dalai Lama. It was very exciting to hear him speak. And there were so many questions from the audience about anger. Anger is one of the main things people like to ask about. And someone asked him at one point, he talked about all the various ways of working with anger. And someone asked him at one point straight out, do you get angry? And he said, well, yes, of course. He said, something happens, isn't going the way you want it to and anger arises. He said, but right away it goes away. It's not a problem. And it was so clear. (laughs) So that's the second energy. I need it and I don't want it. Two opposites of pushing and pulling in the mind. So the third and the fourth difficult mind energies Not enough energy and too much energy. Not enough energy everybody struggled with the first day and the second day. It's sleepiness. In classical texts, it has another one of those awesome names. It's called sloth and torpor. It sounds like a terrible thing for your mind to have sloth and torpor. But actually, that's really the way the mind feels. It can't get up and do anything. It's really not enough mind energy, sleepiness. Lots of people today were reporting the next step up from sleepiness, which is sort of hypnagogic imagery and dream states coming and going, and feeling disappointed about it. I, on the other hand, think it's a very good sign. I think it's one step up from totally asleep. It's on the way. It's on the way to a little bit of a clear mind. I think it's a good sign. But still, low energy in the mind, not enough energy really to see clearly. It's nothing that anybody can do anything about. You can't. There are ways to work with it, but if it's here, it's here. Then you work with it. You can't do anything to prevent it from arising. In retreats, it manifests in all different kinds of ways, like thinking, well, I guess I'll take a nap, or... Maybe I'll skip the sitting and go for another walk. 
in life the same sorts of low cycles of energy have the potential of really undermining our life activities, our relationship, our professional work, just as it has the potential of undermining the contemplative work that we do here. So it's an important energy to recognize and to work with. I have a friend who says that her principal mind difficulty is sloth and torpor. She's a very alert and professionally successful person. So it doesn't really mean anything about oneself. It's not a terrible indictment. She's just really aware that she has to work extra hard to bring energy to every endeavor. Every endeavor looks just a little bit of a stretch away. But since she's aware of that as a mind pattern of hers, she's prepared to make that stretch. The opposite energy to not enough energy in the mind is too much energy in the mind. It's the mind that's buzzing. It's kind of like the motor is idling all the time. And it's hard to really settle down. It's hard to sit. It's called restlessness in the mind. And actually, it's interesting because I had, previous to this practice, thought of restlessness only as a body manifestation. Only people who couldn't sit still were restless. I hadn't thought of it so much as a mind manifestation. It's actually a mind-body manifestation. that can feel the energy in the mind kind of buzzing along, unable to settle down, kind of a restless and an agitated energy. Sometimes if you feel it in the body and your whole body buzzes and is agitated, Sometimes people, uh, especially on retreats, when restlessness in the mind and body is a difficulty for them, they report feeling that they're going to explode if they sit for another minute. I used to think I was going to explode if I sat for another minute on that zafu. I was going to be the first yogi in history to, <laughs> to explode on the zafu. And then when the bell ring, ding! the restlessness goes away before you even move. You see how much the mind is agitated and has agitated itself by identifying with that restlessness. It's not a big deal. It's just a lot of energy in the mind. That restlessness in the mind leads to a mind thinking style that's fretful. Chronic warriors have agitated minds, I think. It's just the way they are that the mind in its sort of fretful agitation keeps grinding out worries, frets. What if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? People often recognize them, their, that aspect of fretful mind in themselves when they hear it described as the preoccupation with a certain worry. We worry it and worry it and worry it and worry it and worry it. And then that problem is resolved. So you think, phew. Now I don't have to worry about that worry anymore. Mind relaxes. About two minutes later, the scanning mechanism goes on again, and it starts looking around like a lighthouse beacon. What else should I worry about? What else is out there? Enough people are laughing for me to know that there are sufficient people with that particular mind energy to recognize it. I recognize it. It is my most principal mind difficulty, so I know it well. 
The fifth energy doesn't have a partner. It's not wanting and not wanting and too little and too much. It's slippery mind. And it's called the energy of doubt. And it's an interesting energy. It's, inter- it's different from the first four energies because the other four are easy to feel in your body. I need that. I want it. I feel lacking. I don't want it. The body tenses and closes down around something. I don't have enough energy. The body is torpid and sleepy. I'm too agitated and restless. You feel that. Doubt doesn't feel so much in the body, so it's a little bit insidious. You don't really recognize it. comes out more in thoughts. This is the wrong practice for me. I actually should have taken up some other practice. This is the wrong time of year. I shouldn't have come now when it's so cold. I should have come in the middle of the summer when it would have been more pleasant to be here. I'll never do it. Everybody else here is a better meditator than I am. I can see from their walking they're all settled down and only I am agitated. All kinds of doubt. I'll never make it till the end of the week. I'll never retain whatever things I learn here. It's doubting thoughts which are really just part of that slippery mind energy of doubt, which we then believe and take seriously and become demoralized about. All of those five energies are just mind energies that happen. It's not a problem to have the mind energies. It's a problem to believe them and become demoralized about them. There are really very skillful ways to work with all of those energies. So I'll tell you some skillful ways. (laughs) Let's do it this way. Let's think about there being three categories of skillful ways. And the three categories of skillful ways will correspond to the three aspects of the path part of mind training. There'll be right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. So that there are various things that you can do that are right effort to address those hindrances. You remember that right effort is the cultivation in the mind of wholesome mind states and the uh, not cultivating in the mind of unwholesome mind states. So that it's fair to work with mind states. Sometimes people think, well, this is a practice that um, conditions the mind and heart to be open to all aspects of mind and body experience as they arise and pass away. And really it does. And then they think that that's somehow an injunction not to work with one's experience. If restlessness is coming up, I'll just be restless. If anger is overwhelming me, I'll just be angry. This is not to say that in any way we deny what's coming up or don't look at it or pretend it isn't there, nor, however, are we obliged to be overwhelmed by it and caught up with it and become identified with it. There are ways to make right effort with difficult mind states. Take the right effort that's involved for the mind state of wanting, the mind state of desire. Something comes up in the mind. Wish I had X or Y. Uh, 
that we don't have. Wish I had uh, a higher zafu or another sweater or whatever it is. I could go back to my room and get another sweater now. Or, or I could just stay here and put on another blanket and work with that. I could watch the impulse to go and get something or do something to make myself feel better. And I could just watch the impulse. This is not because this is a, a practice of mortification of the flesh or somehow self-denial. It's a practice of watching. Suppose, for instance, the morning has been pretty boring and the lunch is pretty exciting. And you think to yourself, well, I'll go have another second helping of lunch. That will make me feel better. It'll counteract the blah morning. You think to yourself, but I really don't need this second portion of lunch. As a matter of fact, if I eat it, I'll undoubtedly be sleepy in the afternoon and my problems will be compounded. You could not do it. You could say, that's just desire. That's desire that's coming up. It's coming up. Here looks something good and desire has come up to meet it. You could not do it. Restraint is the word that's used. It's one of those quaint words, restraint. But it's an important kind of a concept. Not, again, because this is a practice of denial. In fact, it isn't. We're in this extraordinarily beautiful place and comfortable surroundings, and I'm happy about that. And I think it's wonderful that we have comfortable beds and comfortable meals and everything here that's comfortable because it isn't a practice of denial. In fact, I think the delightful surroundings really serve to ease the mind and open the heart. I think that's wonderful. But the practice of restraint in certain circumstances has a great value because when we restrain ourselves from something that we think we needed and wanted, and it's not appropriate to have, what happens is that the desire passes. It just goes away. And then what you see really is more fundamentally that the nature of desire, like the nature of all other mind states, is that they're ephemeral and they come and go. And they come and go just on their own. And that we're not really victims of it. It's actually quite liberating to practice restraint. Sometimes it sounds like the opposite, but it's actually quite freeing. We don't have to respond to every call. Talk a little bit about the right effort that can be made with aversive mind states. Grumpy thoughts, judgments on people. It's amazing how in the rarefied atmosphere of a retreat, Sometimes grumpy thoughts and judgments about people get compounded to the level of personal vendetta so that somebody in the group will have a style that hits you in a certain way. They walk too slow or too fast or they eat too slow or too fast. And the mind in a grumpy mood latches onto that and decides that it doesn't like that person. And then it continues not to like it. And every time you see that person, sort of grumpy thought on that person comes out. It's like an occupation for the mind, compounding the grumpy thought. Actually, probably what happened is that person came into view just while the mind was in a grumpy phase. <laughs> like ducks in a shooting gallery. You know, that, okay, that one, boom. 
It happens the same way with falling in love with people. There's a certain amount of... (laughs) That also happens in these sorts of circumstances. Sometimes there's a wonderful feeling in the body, a somewhat aroused feeling in the body, and actually a needy feeling in the body, and you open your eyes and here goes somebody by. They are suddenly what you've been waiting for all these years. It happens all the time. It's a wonderful example of the fact that it isn't something outside that causes our feelings to come up. We have a certain amount of energy and it's looking for an object. And the the reason for working with aversive energy is that it's so unpleasant. And it really does cloud the mind. Those grumpy thoughts and continuing judgments and on and on and on about what's the matter with that person or why we don't like them. Or even remembering stuff in our life that's made us angry and that we want out of our mind. can go it over and over and over again. And actually, in order to be able to see clearly, we need ease of mind and clarity of mind. We need to let go of that. One way to work with that is to look for ways really to forgive people who have in some way seemed offensive to you. It's hard to do that sometimes, especially when we really feel we know about in in real life, not an imaginary relationship that we've made with someone here. But in real life, many people have been really offended, often abused by people in their lives. And then when they come to practice in the quiet of the mind, their reaction to that abuse comes up. And it's quite a normal thing. And then the mind is really filled with the feelings they have about that. And it's appropriate and reasonable. There's a certain point, however, I think, where having come to full awareness of how we feel about things sometimes becomes more helpful to look for ways to pass by that awareness to a place of more personal ease. When you think about it, if we've been grievously wounded by someone and we continue to be angry at them, The grievous wounding is continuing because we are continuing being hurt. The anger really is hurting us. It's not a big deal for the other person if we forgive them. That person is going about the world doing whatever they're doing all the while. It's a big deal for us if we forgive other people because we then have that ease of heart. How to forgive people who have grievously wounded is really hard. One way to do it, according to Buddhist practice, is to think about the fact that when people behave in an unskillful way, they've done that out of ignorance. 
They've done it out of ignorance. The Dalai Lama said about that, he said, everybody, all human beings, have the common bond of wanting to be happy. Everyone wants to be happy. And everything that people do is because they think in some way it will ease their pain and it will make them happier. Sometimes they do very unskillful things. If we recognize that the motivation for whatever people do comes from that shared (coughs) desire to be happy and that the use of unskillful means comes from ignorance, sometimes it's easier to be compassionate towards people who cause pain, behave cruelly. Especially if you have a sense that there is some validity to the notion of karma. It's possible to look at people, to understand people who are behaving in an unskillful way and really feel compassion for them out of an awareness of what the fruits of their actions will bring to them at some point. One of the ways that people talk about most for dealing with anger is just an awareness of how we are all interrelated in some way. So that this person that I've thought of as my enemy is in some way related to me, part of the human family now. In traditional texts it says things like, we've all been each other's mother and father and sister and brother and wife and husband so many times. Who knows what this person has been to you in your last experience with them, or will be. And out of that sort of compassion to be able to make space for them. So there are ways to work effectively with angry thoughts. Very much even to meditate or to think about, reflect, on the fact that freedom really depends, our freedom really depends on letting go of anger. With that in mind, it sometimes makes it easier. So let's talk about right effortful things that can happen with low mind energy. Well, you know them all. You can sit up taller or take a brisk walk or take a shower, eat less. Because if you're hungry, you stay a little bit more awake than if you eat too much. That's sort of the opposite right effort that is needed for working with too much restless energy in the mind. Slow down, calm down, take some long breaths. Be a little bit more slow in your way. Take some deep breaths sometimes when you're really restless. And say, just breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. That's a lovely line. Thich Nhat Hanh uses that as a phrase for meditation. It's just a wonderful thing to do. Try it sometimes when you sit. 
Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. Sometimes people think, well, I'm just supposed to sit down and take my experience just as it comes. In the final analysis, yes, but there's no rule about conditioning the experience in some way. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. The right effort to deal with um, doubt, you've already done. You've come here and put yourself in the company of sincere and dedicated sangha. That the best antidote for the notion of, um, the immediate antidote for the notion of this isn't going to work, I'm in the wrong place, I don't know about this practice, is to open your eyes and see a room full of 50 people doing it. Then you think, well, all these people seem to be pretty sure that they're in the right place. They're probably not all wrong, so I'll go along with that. The sense of sangha, the sense of group support, is enormous as an antidote for doubt. So those are some right effort things that you can do for dealing with the hindrances, and they're all right there. Let's do the right concentration ones. You could do all those things. All of those things are things that you do. Take a walk, don't take a walk, take a shower, have some tea. They're all things that you do. They're all okay things to do. They're doing things. Right concentration is you could come back to the breath and concentrate a little more. Or you could go back to the walking and concentrate a little more. You could say to yourself, I'm all flurried up with this anger. I'm all flurried up and caught up in this wanting. I'm all agitated. I'm full of doubts. I have no energy. All of those things and say, okay, I'm putting them aside. I'm not going to do anything more with them. Certainly not tell myself a story about what a total loss as a meditator I am and I'll never work it out. I'll let that all be. I'll recognize that as a hindrance in the mind and I'll just come back and take the next step and the next step and the next step with care and with precision and with dedication. I'll take the next breath and the next breath and the next breath. What happens if you do that? is that the mind becomes more concentrated. As the mind becomes more concentrated, everybody's mind here is more concentrated than it was three days ago, just from sitting and walking and being still. As the mind becomes more and more concentrated, there are natural factors of the mind that come up that are the natural antidotes to all of those difficult energies of the mind. I'll tell you what they are. As the mind settles down, its capacity to see clearly events as they arise becomes sharpened. It's called the ability of aiming the mind. See a breath begin, where a breath ends. You see just when your foot touches the floor, or just when it leaves the floor. The energy of aiming precisely and knowing. That particular energy wakes up the mind so that the torpor goes away. Another energy that's part of the energy of a concentrated mind, factor that's part of a concentrated mind, 
is the ability to sustain attention on any particular object. And stay with the breath, stay with the breath, stay with the walking, stay with the walking. As the mind develops this capacity to be sustaining, it's a natural antidote for the energy of doubt. Say, look, I can so do it. Look at that. I can hang out right here. As the mind becomes more concentrated, the certain amount of rapture that comes up in the body, pleasant sensation, sense of joy in the body, that comes up, that's a natural antidote to aversion and to anger. It's very hard to feel angry when you feel filled with pleasure. It doesn't work. It's a natural antidote for that. As the mind becomes more concentrated, calm in the mind increases, and it's a natural antidote to agitation and restlessness. And as the mind becomes concentrated, it becomes one-pointed. And the ability to be one-pointed is a natural antidote to the mind full of desire, which is looking around, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. Stays right here, it doesn't need anything else. So that concentration is itself, the factors of concentration, the aspects of concentration, are a natural antidote to all of those uncomfortable mind energies. And so we'll just talk about the last path aspect, that of right mindfulness and the way in which right mindfulness works with difficult mind energies. Right mindfulness, you know, is the ability to be clearly and see clearly, understand, know what's arising when it's arising fully, not holding on to it and not pushing it away. Clarity of awareness, what's true about this, to be able to be with it. Bringing an element of mindfulness to the difficult mind states as they arise and pass away makes it possible to see them in their ephemeral aspect, makes it possible to see that that's what's true about them, that they come and go, that they're just mind energies. They're not solid, they're not permanent. Remember one time, oh, I had such a dramatic sort of first learning of that. It was a long time ago, and I was doing some intensive practice. <coughs> and I can't remember, actually, what difficult energy was brewing in me all day long, but it was brewing and brewing, getting bigger and bigger, and I was really seriously hanging out with that mind energy. And not only, not just feeling the energy, but thinking up stories about it, and feeling sorry for myself about it, and really feeling discouraged about my the whole retreat, because I was pretty sure that as the energy was escalating during the day, that it would never, that it would be with me until the end of the retreat. And by the end of the day when it was tea time, I was demoralized to the point of tears and I got up and left the meditation hall and the mind was frantically looking for something to do to bail myself out of that situation. 
I thought, well, I'll go take a shower. Maybe I'll feel better if I take a shower. And here I am, all befuddled with my situation. And the bell rang for tea. And the bell rang for tea. And here I am on my way to my room. And just for a moment, I thought about, hmm, tea. Then I thought, I wonder what they're having for tea. (laughs) And I kind of had the mental image of what might be out there on the tea table. And in that moment, I had interest in the tea. And I realized in that moment, as I visualized the tea table, that the whole mood shifted. The entire story disappeared, whatever it was, the whole day long. My whole heavy mind stayed and feeling trapped in it and caught in it and worried about it. In the one moment that I thought to myself, oh, tea, I'm interested in that. And desire arose, and I knew it. I thought, oh, I feel like tea, desire. The whole thing was gone, my whole long story. I spent a whole day (laughs) on a whole long story, and it was gone. That's how mind states are. They just vanish. They're just bubbles. And it's, it's really true, you know. Sometimes this is a thought that's so captivating or a story that's so captivating. You make a big effort. You say, okay, I'm really going to let this go. I'm going to bring my attention back to the breath. You laboriously do that. And you find the breath in, out, in, out. Say, now, what was that thought I was just thinking? And it's all gone. It's all gone a minute later, and you see that they're all like bubbles. They just disappear. The mind states are bubbles. They just disappear. Really, when we bring mindfulness to bear on the mind states, we see everything that's true, that they're temporal, they come and go, that there's no mind state, no any state that's conditioned, that's permanently a source of comfort because nothing stays. Most wonderful, blissful, extraordinary mind state will go, as will the most painful and terrible mind state come and go. They all come and go. When that clarity begins to develop about the nature of mind states, then we're able to be with the difficult mind states, with the hindrances, with some amount of spaciousness. Oh, here's my desire just coming up again. Okay, desire. There it went. Here's my fretful mind grinding out a fret again, making up a worry. You don't have to take it seriously. It goes ahead and does its thing, but you don't have to take it seriously. Sometimes think about the thought machine as kind of like the popcorn machine in the lobby of movies. You know that popcorn machine is just spewing out popcorn all the time? The thought machine is just making thoughts. And it's making them dependent on the sort of energy in the mind. And you can take it seriously or not. You can certainly recognize it, for that's what it is. It's the thought machine making thoughts. Sometimes we certainly have to act on our thoughts. Sometimes we have to do things. But if it's a habitual conditioned thought, because that's the way the mind happens to work here, can really have that spaciousness around it. There's the fretting, but that's just my mind making up a fret. I'll just go ahead gives you a certain spaciousness around it so that you can watch it come and go. And begin to see the impersonality of mind states. They just come and go. We don't decide to have a bliss or decide to have an anxiety. They just come and go. But when we see that, that they come and go, conditioned for sure, but because they're conditioned states that they come and go, we can be more at ease with them. 
I'd forgotten this story and I just remembered it, so I think I'll tell it to you. And we'll finish with that. Because I remember saying that uh, everybody has one or another predominant hindrance. But actually, there's such a phenomenon as a multiple hindrance attack. (laughs) So I'll tell you the story of a multiple hindrance attack to tell you what one is like. Some years ago, I was was doing some intensive practice at a retreat center in Massachusetts on Halloween. I know it was Halloween because there were uh, jack-o'-lanterns all around the room. in the evening, when uh, we'd been out for a walking period and came back into the room, uh, during the time that everyone was out walking, the staff had set up all these jack-o'-lanterns all around the room and put candles in them. It was really beautiful. And I came in, and I'd been practicing for some weeks, and I felt really quite clear and quite steady. I felt wonderful. I was really not only feeling wonderful, but I was pleased with my practice and I really felt good about myself and I was enjoying the pumpkins, totally happy. And I came to my Zafu and I noticed that not only had they put pumpkins, but the staff had put candy on everybody's Zafu. Everybody had a piece of candy and I thought, yeah, that's really wonderful. And I looked down at my Zafu and I had great bubble gum. <laughs> And I actually don't like great bubble gum. <laughs> so I had a moment of aversion about the bubble gum. But, and it never entered my mind to change candies with anybody. <laughs> so I sat down on my Zafu, but here I am with this bubble gum. And I thought to myself, well, it doesn't matter because you really don't want to eat sugar while you sit anyway. It's not good for the mind. Just as well that it's nothing that you like. (laughs) Sour grapes, probably. But I tell myself that. Just as well that it's nothing that you like. But here I am with this bubble gum. But that aversion has now arisen in the mind. Then I see that my friend Roger, who sits in front of me, is not there yet. His Zafu is there. He's not back yet. I thought to myself, I'll just put this bubble gum on Roger Zafu. That way he'll have two candies and he'll have more to be pleased about. It's kind of a, a desire to please Roger. And I didn't think about it, so I just acted on that desire and put the candy on his Zafu, the bubble gum. No sooner did I put it on his Zafu than I regretted doing it. <laughs> Because I thought to myself, that was really, uh, I've really just intruded on Roger's space. I mean, I'm such a good yogi. I don't talk to people. I keep my eyes down. I mind my business. Now I've put extra candy on his apple. He'll come in. He'll think I have a secret admirer here. I will flurry up his whole mind. I'll disorganize his whole thought processes. I was so thoughtless to do this just because I acted on my desire. By that time, I had tremendous agitation in my mind. <laughs> so now I've got desire, aversion, agitation. I'm totally demoralized with myself as a yogi. I think to myself, how could you have done such a dumb thing? You're, I mean, you're supposed to be a good yogi. You're even teaching this stuff. What if somebody knew? I can't believe I just did that. So now I have doubt. 
And by that time, I have total exhaustion and torpor of the mind from that whole uproar. And the whole event took less than 60 seconds. <laughs> Multiple hindrance attack. What was, what was fine about the situation is I was totally, just totally dismayed with the whole event. But I sat down and I said, you've just had a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> That's what happened. Look at that. It was, a tremendous, it was a tremendous insight about how, how really uh, fragile mind states are. Here I was thinking that it not only was in a steady and clear place, but that it was so solid and so well established. One piece of great bubble gum, <laughs> and the whole thing was over. So I learned a lot about, but I, so you sit down, you say I had a multiple hindrance attack. Actually, it seemed funny to me then, because then I could be a little lighthearted about it. I said, look at that, you had a multiple hindrance attack, let it go. Smile, look at the jack-o'-lanterns, take some deep breaths. I was fine. You can do that too. You see, you're going along, you're going along, all of a sudden, boom, hindrance. Say, this is a hindrance. I can work with this, because he can. Sometimes people wish that they could come to retreats and that their mind would just be quiet. And they had some notion that there'll be some magic retreat sometime where they'll come and no difficult mind states would arise. But that's not the nature of mind. If no difficult mind states arose, we'd see clearly. Probably wouldn't be here to retreat. Come to learn how to work with the difficult mind states. They are the obstacles to clear seeing. In our life, they're the obstacles to comfortable living. We can work with them skillfully. And in our contemplative practice, in our quest for seeing clearly what's true, they're the disorganizing, ruffling energies that cloud the mind. But it's really all workable. That was a lot of talking. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or two.
This talk was given by Silvio Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 3, 1991. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can